Okay, he handed me a microphone, and I'll be done when you pry this microphone out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> you may be seated. Thank you. I do very much appreciate your very warm welcome. Uh, I don't know how to express the extent of the joy that I have for getting to be here with you. Uh, Brother and Sister Thorson and their family are such a tremendous inspiration to me. And uh, my strong, strong fellowship with them was extended. And Brother McAtee and his family have become so very dear to me. And the rest of you also have become a part of of my heart. That's the way the Lord works. That, that's not bragging about how warm and open I am because personally, I, without the Lord, I'd probably care less. You know. Hey, I know what I was when the Lord got a hold of me. And I much prefer what he's made since then and I'm really looking forward to what he's going to do. Praise the Lord. So thank you, Pastor. And uh, so you uh, will truly understand. Uh, I think some of the purpose for Brother McAtee's comments were to encourage you maybe to put a little extra offering in designated to pay <laughs> <clears throat> for the expense of this. <laughs> Although I'm a cheap date. to uh, offerings I don't need any personally and don't care about that at all numbers of times I've had uh, ministers ask me what it required for me to come preach for them and my answer has always been the same and my answer always has gotten a repeat of the original question But I say, well, first of all, the pastor has to invite me or I won't come preach. <laughs> Secondly, he's going to have to pay my transportation expense because most of the time I can't. Thirdly, he's going to have to give me a place to sleep. Fourthly, he's going to have to feed me from time to time. <laughs> after time, after time, <laughs> after time. I mean, I'm a big man in Pentecost. <laughs> I've preached in 58 nations. I've been a big man everywhere I've gone. <laughs> but those are the requirements. And uh, they always ask the question again because they want to know, well, how much do we have to pay you to get you to come? And I will tell you honestly, I despise every preacher that requires payment. Every one of them. I don't care who they are. God didn't call us to go get offerings. And, uh, boy, you can't get him in debt to you. You can't do it. So you be relieved about this, the, the thought that you're going to need to uh, put a, 
an offering in because that is not true. Sister Readout feels very bad she can't be here this morning. Uh, she woke up at 3 a.m. with extreme nausea and was in trouble all morning with it. Otherwise, she doesn't feel at all bad. She doesn't have any fever or, or body stuff like that. It was just a nausea for some reason. But she was able to keep some tea down this morning, and she has hopes to be able to eat some chicken noodle soup, which her totally dedicated and loving husband <laughs> made the exhaustive journey across the street. <laughs> hey, when you got a back like mine, that's a big journey. Even though all I had to do was walk to the car, drive over, and then walk. In. But that's a big grocery store. <laughs> and the things she asked me to get, some of them were in that corner. And, the, and in the order she gave them to me, the next item was in that corner. And then there was one back in this corner. And so I walked about four miles this morning. <laughs> I got even with her. I made her put a pain patch on my back. <laughs> Take that. I can't think of a good reason. I was glad you got it. <clears throat> well, I don't need any because I brought a supply. <laughs> That'll go anywhere without them. You know, I've been thinking about can I put them on two and three at a time? Yeah. That was the voice of experience. I can, I can tell. <laughs> the thing is, I need to wrap it around the hip inside, you know, and the last five vertebrae. You know, it's bad when they give you the injection in the spine that's supposed to be good for four months and it works for less than four weeks. And then they give you the next one, and it doesn't work at all. And the next one, and it doesn't work at all. And the next one, it doesn't work at all. You know, I should retire on malpractice lawsuits. I, <laughs> but I don't have the, what it takes to punish a caregiver. You know, unless it's negligence, and then I'll sue them for all they're worth. <laughs> I'll try to take their whole insurance company down. <laughs> that's what it's there for. That's right. And that's why they have to charge so much, because they got to pay the premium. That's a fact. Before I get into the message this morning, I'll tell you a little story. I had quadruple bypass surgery in 1994. 95, and uh, I broke all six wires that they used to bring the breastbone back together. And uh, the, the surgeon had a hard time with that. Now, he's a, he was a bright rising star in cardiac surgery, uh, one of the great names as a young man. And uh, when he finally saw the x-rays that proved that those six stainless steel wires were broken, 
not just on one side, but on both sides, six wires. So my breast uh, bone was floating loose, it was open. And there are six wires, each of them two broken ends. You know. So he finally said, well, we've got to go in and fix that. And I, I said to him, does this happen often? And he said, what? I said, you know, that the wires you put in break? He says, well, no, it's, it's not happened that I know of before. I said, is your malpractice insurance paid up? And I thought he was going to pass out. <laughs> I mean, literally, he, he turned ashen white and his eyes started rolling. I said, wait, Doc, that was a joke. That was a joke. You've held my heart in your hands. I would not do that to you. But he was about, I thought he was going. I really did. And because uh, a malpractice suit early in a practice is uh, almost a death sentence. But uh, so I'm, I'm careful about making jokes like that to certain kinds of people because uh, it brings terror into their hearts. Now, I don't want to bring terror into your hearts today. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe just a little, no. Others save with fear, the scripture said, you know. And some, you know, having compassion. Others save with fear. I'm good at that part. You know, I, I've got a, a good message for this morning and I wish I could show the slides. But it doesn't matter, because there aren't any really graphics in it, it's all text. It actually, it's the script I'm going to read from. That's all it is. But uh, I want you to understand, I have no interest at all in going somewhere to preach where I can't give the people something they're not going to get from somebody else. That's right. I, I have no desire to be a redundant preacher. You know, so whatever you expect from a guest speaker, toss it out because I probably am not going to get it to you. I want to give you something that the Lord has given to me. Not something I got from pastor so-and-so or evangelist so-and-so or bishop so-and-so. I'm sorry. God didn't give that message to me to give to you. I would rather share with you things the Lord has shared with me. And I hope to do that this morning. Uh, forgive me for not standing, but please stand and turn into Hebrews chapter 12. This is tradition that we start, you know, by reading a scripture and, and then praying as though... God needs to hear it. Does he know your heart? Does he know your thought afar off, which means before you thought it? Yes, he does. But we have the tradition, and I don't object to it. But in Hebrews 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Amen. Brother McAtee, do me the favor of uh, asking the Lord a favor of helping us to know and understand. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Thank you, and please be seated. Settle in. Get your seatbelts on. Don't worry about the time. I promise to be done no later than when the trumpet sounds. <laughs> Guaranteed when that happens, I'm out of here. <laughs> Hope you are, too. <laughs> The title of the message this morning is The Attraction of the Cross. And to introduce it, I would like you to uh, hear, at least, maybe you want to turn to them, some scriptures that point out the problem that this message deals with. The first of the two scriptures that detail the problem is John 14, 6 where Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What that means is every religion, any religion, all religions, have no possibility of making contact with God except it be through Jesus Christ. Now, that's not a problem. However, in John 6, 44, Jesus said, No man can come to me, except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Do you see the problem? You can't get to the Father except through Christ, and you can't come to Christ without the Father having brought you. That's a little bit of an issue. But there is a solution to that, and Jesus gave us that solution in John 12, 32. And I, he said, 
if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Okay, I got a pet peeve. I got to pause and, and get it off my chest. Lift him up, lift him up, because he said, if I be lifted up, I'll... yeah, read the context and find out what lifted up means. It means crucified. That's what it means. To be lifted up is to be crucified, put up on a cross. So if you sing that song, stop it. Because what you're really singing is, well, crucify him, crucify him. Because he said if he... No, we don't, we don't want that, do we? But there's the, the solution here. Jesus said, I will draw all men unto me if I'm crucified. That means that crucifixion seems to be pretty significant. I got scriptures that I, I set up to read and talk about. You know, like Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Christ. You know, and everything you can read in the New Testament about the cross of Jesus Christ, you'll find that it's given a very high importance in the word. Not just because it's a cross, but of who it was that died there. That's what made that cross so special. And you need to know that the Roman Catholic Church has sold enough pieces of the genuine cross to have replanted the Brazilian rainforest. You know, that's because they didn't get any of them in the first place. But the cross is of critical importance, and there's a power in the cross. And, yeah, theologically I can say, well, the power in the cross is the blood that was shed upon it, and the identity of the one that was crucified there. That's true. So I'm not trying to make the cross an idol that we should worship. You understand? You know, don't go praying to the cross. But there's something about it. This is not in my, my message. It's not in the notes. It's going to be in the message starting today. When I first arrived in Japan in January of 1956, one of the things that happened is my dad took my mother and my three sisters into a, a shop, kind of a gift shop, a curio shop. And uh, he was going to get every one of us something there in that shop because we'd been out of contact for 17 days. Ten days on that ship, we had no communication with anybody anywhere because we were caught in a typhoon. We had no radio communications. And we were supposed to have landed in Yokohama, come to port in Yokohama, a full 10 days before we did. And no communications. My poor dad waiting for us in Yokohama with no word whatsoever. They didn't know whether our ship had sunk or, or what had happened. And when we got there, dad decided he wanted to just give us all a little present which made up for letting us look into that Japanese restaurant, which was serving 
raw eel on top of raw eggs, on top of rice, and I would have killed for a hamburger. <laughs> I, I would have done a mass shooting to get a hamburger. In fact, I'd have probably dropped another atomic bomb if it had gotten me a, you know, when you're in a storm like that, if you could eat anything, it would maybe be a saltine cracker with a little of, bit of Coca-Cola syrup. Not Coca-Cola, just the syrup. That's because that's too thick and heavy to get back up. You know. And so we were all hungry. But in that curio shop, in that gift shop, there was only one thing that got my attention. And that was a crucifix. Now, I already knew, because I had just gotten my seven-year Sunday school pin. And that wasn't easy when two of those Sundays were in a typhoon on a ship, you know. But I was there in the chapel, you know, my skin was a pale green, as was everybody else's. And we were mostly praying for deliverance, you know. But that crucifix, uh, it, it attracted me, not because of the body hanging on it, because I already knew that he wasn't there. But there was something about the cross that affected me. Now, I want you to go hear some scriptures that tell you that the solution that Jesus offered to the problem that if he were crucified, he would draw all men unto him. I want you to know it was true what he said. Mark fifteen thirty nine says, And when the centurion, that's a soldier who's in charge of 100 other soldiers, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, please forgive me for disabusing you of a fallacy. This Roman centurion was not making a Christian theological statement. When in the Roman culture, somebody demonstrated superior character and quality of spirit, he would be called a son of the gods. Okay. And this centurion standing there against the cross, watching him, hearing him, said truly, this man was the son of God. Not of the gods. But something happened to change this man's thinking about deities. Because he'd never really known somebody who exhibited nothing but quality. Like Jesus did. This is recorded also in Matthew 27 starting at verse 54. 
Now, when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. They hadn't feared before that. They weren't fearing when they nailed him to the cross. They weren't fearing when they mocked him. They weren't fearing when they gambled for his garments. But when watching him, they saw also the earthquake and all the things that happened, they greatly feared. And what, what caused that fear? Oh, we're going to die in an earthquake. No, it's because they realized who it was that they had crucified. That's what did it. It's repeated in Luke 23, 47. Now, when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Now, Luke is giving you what the Roman centurion's words meant. He wasn't saying, oh, this is the third person in the Trinity or this is God manifest in flesh. He's just saying, this was a righteous man. In spite of all of the negative things that were said and how he was treated. I have a, a personal bias about a passage of scripture that's not a part of this, so hold on, hold your horses. If you have horses, I like to ride. You know the scripture tells us, don't, don't believe what churches tell you. Believe what the scripture says. That there was a man coming out of the country, one Simon, a Cyrenian and as they were forcing Jesus to carry his cross up to Golgotha, that they compelled. Everybody say compelled. That's not encouraged. That's not requested. That wasn't seeking volunteers. They forced Simon the Cyrenian to carry the cross. But what we aren't told outside of the detail of scripture was Simon didn't carry the cross by himself. He carried the tail end of the cross so that it wouldn't drag on the cobblestones and pop up the cobblestones and cause a need for street repair. But also so that the full weight of that cross would fall upon Jesus Christ. That disturbs me. That was a tremendous unkind. I mean, the unkindnesses that went through. I'll, I'll talk about some of them. But I, I asked the Lord, why such astounding cruelty? 
against you? And his answer was a, a burdensome thing. He says, if I had said the wrong thing, if I had said what you would say, you'll get yours someday. They would have justified themselves for having treated me that way. They would have said, see, that's why we're crucifying him. See, before all of that abuse, Jesus was in a trial and somebody smote him just because he said truth, but it was truth they didn't like. You know, he said to the high priest, why do you ask me what I taught? I, every day I taught in the temple, openly, in front of everybody, where the Jews, good Jews always resort. So why are you asking me what I taught? And somebody smacked him across the face. And Jesus issued a challenge. If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if good, why smitest thou me? And the world needs to find out why we smite him. And that challenge went unanswered. The temple guard who smote him didn't have an answer. And these leaders are supposed to be able to tell a man's character just by observation. But they couldn't point to a flaw in him. They couldn't say that what he said was wrong. And so that challenge went on to the Roman centurion. Why are we doing this to him? And they needed to find an excuse. Because they themselves didn't know why. After Pilate gave him a scourge as punishment, and brought him out and said, Behold the man. And they said, No, that's not enough. We want him crucified. That's not my fault. Oh, yeah, it is. That's a lie. It tells me that my blood sugar is too low. I got news for you. You're goofy. Go away. Anyway, why, why are we abusing this man this way? After that initial beating... Where the, you, you read it in the scripture. You didn't know he went through two scourges, did you? But he did. The first one was just to punish him for something that, was, that he never did wrong. You know, and, he, and Pilate was trying to, to excuse him, to let him get away. But the people refused him. And he brought him out, battered and bruised. Sixteen things the scripture specifies that those Roman soldiers and the temple guards did to him. An innocent man. And then after that, when the ninth trial concluded and he was judged innocent and sentenced to death for it, then they even made it worse. They forced him to carry his cross. And when they saw that some of the weight of that cross was being transferred down the 
the main pole of the cross onto the ground, some of the weight's being transferred. It's much easier to pull than to carry. They forced Simon the Cyrene to pick up the tail end of the cross and carry it him, carry it after him. Not sequentially, not Christ carried a while and then Simon carried, no. Christ carried it the whole distance. He bare his cross to the place of a skull called Golgotha. But Simon was forced to make it worse. By the way, you know what, how the Bible identifies Simon the Cyrene? It tells us who he is by saying, oh, he's the father of Rufus and Alexander. Now, how would the church know about Simon's sons? Can you imagine when Simon got home and his boys said, Daddy, what did you do in Jerusalem? Well, boys, I got to see the Savior of the world from the foot of the cross because I was carrying it. And I saw the suffering that I added. To him. And so Rufus and Alexander became household names to Christianity. Because I'm fully convinced that they were as converted as their dad and became tremendous Christians. So what did they see? What did they hear at the crucifixion? You ready for this? They saw a man who had been betrayed by a man he counted a friend. They saw a man who had been abandoned by his followers. They saw a man who had been illegally arrested and unjustly treated by the authorities. They saw a man who had been illegally mistreated by his judges. They saw a man who was subjected to nine illegal trials. They saw a man who was falsely accused by paid liars. They saw a man whose own people traded away his life in favor of releasing a known murderer. They saw a man who was sorely abused by his captors. They saw a man who suffered an undeserved punishment scourge. They saw a man who was officially pronounced to be innocent. They saw a man who was officially condemned to die for his innocence. They saw a man who suffered a final and often fatal scourge that lasts three hours. Boy, this is a pain in the kazoo. See, I have a gizmo on my body that tells me what my blood sugar is, and it lies. <laughs> Out, devil. Did you know that when the judgment came and Pilate 
turn Jesus over to the will of the crowd, that before crucifixion, the prisoner was beaten, a scourge that lasted, in Jesus' case, we're told how long it lasted, three hours. Most of those prisoners didn't survive the scourge because the Roman soldiers who were scourging him would also be the ones that would have to go all the way up to Golgotha, would have to do the crucifying and have to stay there until he died. They'd have to break his legs if he was still uh, alive nearing sundown. They'd be responsible for getting rid of the body, and it's much easier just to beat him to death. And this is something that they saw a man who suffered a final and often fatal scourge that lasted for three hours. They saw a man with a crown of thorns pressed down upon his brow. They saw a man forced to carry the full weight of the cross upon which he would be crucified and carry it all the way to the top of Golgotha. They saw a man who refused to drink the painkiller vinegar mixed with gall that was given to all who were to be crucified. He refused it. They saw a man who was nailed to his cross rather than merely tied. In John chapter 20, verse 20, this is after his resurrection. When he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. The side where a spear went in. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. In verse 25 of John 20, the other disciples therefore said unto him, meaning Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. You know, the interesting thing about that is Jesus wasn't there in his mind when he said that. But the next time Jesus appeared, he said, hey, Thomas, Come stick your fingers in. <laughs> Come put your hand in my side. That let Thomas know, boy, he heard me. <laughs> he knew what I said. <laughs> Praise the Lord. They saw a man whom Pilate, the Roman governor, declared to be the king of the Jews. He didn't just ask him. He declared that he was. And Pilate said, or Jesus said so. Thou sayest that I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Meaning this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They saw when they looked at the cross, a man whose crime was identified as being the king of the Jews. That's what that title piece was doing. It was declaring his crime, why he was being crucified. Because he was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They saw a man who endured ridicule 
and cruel mocking during the humiliation of his public execution. You know, the word of God says, Cursed is every man that is hanged on a tree. And that hanged on a tree means crucified. They saw a man whose thirst was answered by the torment of a serving of vinegar. Anybody here ever had a drink of any vinegar? How does it help satisfy your thirst? It multiplies it exponentially. They saw a man whose crucifixion brought a great shroud of darkness all the while he was suffering on the cross. They saw a man whose death was immediately followed by an earthquake. But most of all, they saw a man whose words from the cross were astounding. Understanding the significance of the things that Jesus uttered on the cross requires that we understand the physiological effects of crucifixion, particularly crucifixion by nails. It's true of crucifixion by ropes, but it's even more true of crucifixion by nails. You know what death crucifixion usually caused? Suffocation. Most people that survived the beating and were crucified died from suffocation. And the reason for that, uh, which is especially true if they were nailed on, and uh, oh, by the way, nothing suggests that the thief that was crucified on one side or the other side of him were nailed. And I have another pet peeve, if you pardon my little diversion. Jesus was not crucified between two thieves. I defy you to find anything in Scripture that tells you he was crucified between two thieves. You will find that the Scripture is adamant that he was crucified and the thieves were crucified on either side of him. So the two thieves were never the focus. He is the focus in the Word of God. And the thieves are the peripheral. It, I just think that's neat. You know, you could get excited and dance and shout and I wouldn't be offended. <laughs> Somebody crucified, especially crucified with nails through the palm. And by the way, the palm is from the fingertips to the elbow. So don't think that the nails went through what you think is the palm. They went through a particular place in the wrist where they would uh, be able to support the full weight of a body. And it happens that there's a nerve nexus there. Have any of you ever heard of carpal tunnel syndrome? Yeah. That's where the nails went, through his wrists. 
And to sustain a position needed to breathe when you're hanging on a cross requires two things. You've got to be able to push with your feet and you've got to be able to pull with your hands. And what that does is that puts those nerves under extreme distress. And how long does it take for the arms to get numb and for the legs to get numb from that kind of pressure? Just long enough to exhale and inhale and then you collapse again. So to breathe the next breath, you got to pull up against those nails and push up against the spike in the feet and suffer that agonizing pain again just to be able to exhale and then inhale again. Because when you're in that position, you can't exhale. Your diaphragm can't push air out. It, you have to be in that position to do it. And that's the reality behind things he said while hanging on the cross. It wasn't a running conversation. He suffered to say each thing he said to be able to exhale. And by the way, you know, it's not easy to speak inhaling. He had to suffer like that. The weight of his body pushing on the nail in each hand through his feet. That would cause excruciating pain. And it would be very quick before he could not exhale again without going through it again. So this man that they were looking at could only speak during those few moments that his legs and arms could tolerate the pain caused by the pressure of pushing and pulling against the nails. Those few moments before the nerves caused him to go numb and collapse were the only opportunities he had to say something. I know what I would have said. I would have said, you will all be damned for doing this. And the pain of the fire won't be great enough. You, well, you know, just kindness, pouring. And if he didn't pull up and exhale, he would suffocate. Those few moments were the only opportunities he had to make sound. And we need to remember these hindrances to really hear what Jesus uttered from the cross upon which he died. This, is, this gets to me. I'm sorry, it gets to me. The proof of the chronology of his sayings is included in the lesson two in my Bible study series called The Timetable of the Tomb. Uh, just trust me. This is the order in which he said the things he said. And I will include everything he said, which includes something 
that no commentary I've ever read has ever noticed. The first utterance, this is what the people saw. This is what the people heard when they looked at this man on the cross. The first one's found in Luke 23, 34. This is the first thing he said. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Does anybody doubt that what he said was true? They knew what they were doing. They had cried out, crucify him, crucify. They knew that they were crucifying him. But they didn't know they were crucifying the Lord of glory. Had they known that, they'd have had no part in it. So what he said was true. But the astounding part of it is that he said, Father, forgive them. This, I think, perhaps, is the most grievous sin ever committed by any people against any other person. What they did to him. Father, forgive them. You know what that proves? That they're hanging on that cross. He wasn't thinking about himself. He wasn't thinking about his suffering. He was thinking about what would happen to those that were sinning this way. You know, when you really see the cross for what happened, it makes you want to come to him. It draws you toward him. So that first utterance on the cross demonstrates that his character is exactly as John wants is full of grace and truth. The second utterance is in Luke 23, 43. When speaking to the thief on one side, who had rebuked the thief on the other side, for crying out, if you be the Son of God, save yourself and us. And the other one said, you know, are you just an idiot? You and I are getting what we deserve, but this man's done nothing wrong. And to that man, Jesus said, verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now the theology in that statement skips over the heads of almost everybody. But there's a relationship established by the phrase, with me. If I'm with you, you're picking up the check. You're the host. But if you're with me, I'm happier because I get to pick up the check. And so when he said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He's saying, I'm going to be your host. Today, I'll be your host. And it's going to be in paradise. Somebody say, praise the Lord. I don't know if he could have said anything finer to that man who was going to die 
Of course, it does mean today you're dying too. But don't worry about it. Because today you'll be with me in paradise. No, we're going to leave all this behind. This will just be a dim memory. So today thou shalt be with me proves that Jesus Christ was not thinking about himself, but about the thief. While he was suffering, he wasn't thinking about himself. I'd have been crying out, woe is me. But that second utterance of the Christ on the cross demonstrates that his character is not at all self-centered. Are you doing okay? I hope this is reaching you. The third utterance is found in John 19, 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. I regard those two utterances as one utterance. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. Not two. And in a larger context, neither statement conveys much intent without the other one. Because Jesus wasn't saying, Mom, look at me. It's not what he was saying. He was saying, Woman, behold your son. He couldn't point to him. But John was standing there next to her. And that's why he said to John, Behold your mother. See, so it's one statement. It's really one utterance, but to two different people. Now, we do not know how much time passes between each of the events that are recorded about when Jesus was on the cross. We don't know with any certainty, but behold thy son, behold thy mother, proves to us that Jesus Christ was thinking about the well-being of his mother. And the faithfulness of his disciple. But he wasn't thinking about himself. The third utterance of Christ on the cross demonstrates that his character cares for the well-being of others. And considers that more important than even his own. The fourth utterance is found in Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. <laughs> it's not easy to speak Hebrew when you don't speak any language, but some form of English. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
It's recorded in Mark 15:34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which being interpreted is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's important to note that the Greek word translated cried in those two verses means to call out or to shout. It doesn't mean to whimper, complain, you know, groan. It means to cry out and shout. Remember the physiology. That means it took more effort to make it loud and to project it. It doesn't have any relationship to whining. So what did Jesus mean by shouting out those words? I've heard many a message on this. I've even preached it myself. But what does it mean? Had God forsaken him? If he says to such as you and I, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't think he would forsake the Holy One. Did he believe that God forsook him? Listen, this is the guy that told his disciples ahead of time what was going to happen to him. And this is the guy who said, hey, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own free will. And if I lay it down, I'll take it up again. You understand? So don't fall for any of the sob stories. My God, my God, why are you? That's what we do. That's not what he did. We've already seen what he thinks about while he's on the cross. Let's figure it out. Do you think he felt like God forsaken. Well, he made him to be sin. For, uh, no. He, he was never made sin. But he was made the sin offering. That's what had happened. Or was he quoting from a messianic prophecy that spoke about the sufferings of the Savior? Yeah, the reason Jesus cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is revealed when we learn what God's word says he said next. The fourth utterance of Christ on the cross demonstrated that this man that we crucified honors the scripture. And the fifth utterance will demonstrate why he quoted from Psalm 22. You find it in John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Why didn't he cry out his thirst complaint with a loud voice? 
Why did he say, I thirst at all? Why? Come on, we're told that the scripture would be fulfilled. After this, Jesus, knowing that everything that was going to be done was done except for one thing. There was one thing that the prophecies said Messiah would suffer that he had not yet suffered. And so that that scripture might be fulfilled. He cried, I thirst, said, I thirst. So how did he know that all things were now accomplished except that one thing? How did he know? How did he know there was still one scripture of Messiah's suffering yet unfulfilled? Well, I'll tell you, he knew because he was thinking about what yet needed to be accomplished before he could die as our Savior. <laughs> there was still that one scripture that Messiah was to suffer that had not occurred yet. And that scripture came to his mind as he was enduring the cross, even while he was despising the shame. He was thinking about the prophecies of everything he had to suffer in order to be your Savior. He did this. He cried, I thirst. He, he said, I thirst. So that nothing was left unfulfilled. Aren't you glad that when it comes to being Savior, he made it across the finish line? He didn't have to give up the ball short. So he was going through a mental checklist. And as he was going through that mental checklist, he had to expel some air and take a breath to keep living. And as he expelled the air, he said what he was thinking about. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Check. We got everything there in that psalm taken care of. And then back to not being able to speak. And when he pulls himself up, he says, wait, I found one. I found one. I haven't been given vinegar to drink. So he pulls himself up and he says, I thirst. You know, that's what Psalm 69, 21 said, right? They gave me also gall for my meat. And in my thirst gave me vinegar to drink. So that prophecy had not been fulfilled so that the scripture might be fulfilled, he saith, I thirst. This is the explanation for his calling out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not because he was forsaken, not because he believed he was forsaken or felt he was forsaken, but he was going in his mind through all the things that he had to accomplish before he could die. So that when he died, he would truly be your savior. Psalm 22 details so much about what Messiah would suffer. And he would have thought about each of those things too, to be sure they were accomplished. So Jesus shouted it out and checked it off the list in his own mind. And that left only that one 
unfulfilled prophecy. They gave me vinegar to drink. So he said, I thirst. And you know what? He was depending on the cruelty of man to fulfill the will of God for him to be Savior. And you know, there were there some who were cruel enough after watching all this, hearing all this, there were some who still had the animosity in their souls to give him vinegar for his thirst. John nineteen twenty nine. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank you. That's what I was lacking. Matthew twenty-seven forty-eight. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And the rest said, all those wonderful guys who didn't torment him with vinegar. The rest of them said, well, well let be. Let us see whether Elias will come and save him. This is what's going on in the hearts of men while this other stuff is going on in the heart of Messiah. And one of them ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, let alone, let us see whether Elias will come and take him down. Now you know vinegar is no help to a thirsty man, and it is no kindness to give a suffering man vinegar to drink. None of the soldiers present would have known what Jesus had on his mind. But they would see and hear what followed. The fifth utterance of Christ on the cross demonstrated his willingness to endure all insults without complaint. I don't know anybody else who has ever managed to endure insults without complaint. Not even my own bishops. The sixth thing. Are you still with me? Yeah. Are you getting some of this? Yeah. In John 19.30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. What was finished? Oh, I've heard dozens of messages about the finished work of Christ at Calvary. But what was finished? Was our salvation finished? No, that required his death. Not just his drinking vinegar. That required his burial. That required his resurrection. So your salvation was not finished when he said it is finished. No. So what was finished? Even knowing the agony he had to suffer during the effort to say anything, it is likely that we could have detected 
the relief in his voice. It is finished. I've done my job. I have fulfilled every prophecy. The prophecy of my conception. The prophecies concerning my birth, my life, my ministry. And the prophecies of my suffering. I've got it done. Take us a moment here. You remember in the scripture where the Lord took Peter, James, and John up into the mount we call Transfiguration. And Moses and Elijah appeared there talking with Jesus. Not Jesus talking with them, them talking with him. And you know we are told what they talked about? Did you know that? The scripture actually tells you what Moses and Elijah talked about when they talked with Jesus. His death, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. How many of you think death is an accomplishment? Hey, just hang on. You'll get there. You know. But for him, it was an accomplishment. And by the way, the Greek word translated death is the word exodus. It means departure. He was going to accomplish a departure from this mortal life. Praise the Lord. So this sixth utterance, it is finished, demonstrates the Lord Jesus' determination to endure unto the end. And you know what the scripture says to us about enduring. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Yeah. That brings us to the seventh utterance. Not the last one. But the seventh one. Matthew 27, 50. Are you still with me? You're not too anxious to get out of here. Okay. You know, it's not that I mind you suffering. <laughs> Matthew 27, 50. When he had cried again with a loud voice. Die. <laughs> when he had cried again with a loud voice. Let me say again. This is a second time with a loud voice. So it's not talking about the first time with a loud voice where we know what he said. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. But again he cried with a loud voice. Mark 15, 37 says, and Jesus cried with a loud voice. Now, we do not know what was contained in this shout because the words are not recorded. But we know that he did it. He uttered something. He cried with a loud voice. And that word cried doesn't mean. <laughs> it was an expression. But we aren't told what he said. And that's because it wasn't for us. That's one of the reasons this seventh utterance of Christ from the cross is overlooked.
because we weren't told what he said. We were told he said something, but we pretend he didn't because we didn't know what he said. How many times God has spoken and we were clueless. Yeah. But understanding the sequence of these events very clearly shows that there was that seventh utterance which we're not told what it contained. I suppose it wasn't said meant for our hearing. So we don't know. And we don't know that the cry was one of agony. But that which came before it and after it indicate the character of this cry. Luke, the chronologer, did you know that? That Matthew does not give you a chronology. Mark does not give you a chronology. John does not give you a chronology. But Luke says, I'm putting it in order. The chronology. And when you read it, Luke, the chronologer said that the next utterance came after this shout. That we don't know what he shouted. The things before and after the seventh utterance of Christ on the cross indicate that it was not a cry of defeat, but a cry of triumph. And the eighth utterance is in Luke 23, 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I can't say it like he did because I am not pulling against nails and pushing against the spike and exhaling to get the words out like he was. But I'm saying it like it sounds to me. Father, I got the job done. I commend the force of my life to you. What man can commend his spirit, his life force to God? Nobody you ever met except Jesus could do it. Only the one who has not defiled that force of life by sin in his body and in his mind. So Jesus had completed his earthly task. He had fulfilled every aspect of the will of God for his life. And that eighth utterance of Christ on the cross demonstrates that his conscience was completely free of any concern. Father, into thy hands I commend. I command my spirit. And after these eight utterances of Christ from the cross, the scripture says this, Luke 23, 46, the second part. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now the Greek word for gave up the ghost means he expired, he died. Matthew 27, 50, the second part, says he yielded up the ghost. And the verb yield means to send forth. He sent forth the force of life. 
He did say, no man takes it from me. <laughs> Mark 15, 17, the first, or 15, 37, the first part says, and he gave up the ghost. And again, that's the word that just means he died. John 19, 30, the second part says, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. That Greek word means to surrender or to yield up. So when the Lord Jesus had fulfilled his exodus in Jerusalem, as I mentioned out of Luke 9, 31, the darkness that was over the earth while he was hanging on the cross suffering, that darkness had to surrender to the light of day. When he had fulfilled his exodus, the darkness had to flee. From the light of day. When the Lord Jesus had fulfilled his exodus in Jerusalem. The veil in the temple was rent. From top to bottom. What was the immediate result. Of Christ being lifted up from the earth. What was it? He said and I. If I be lifted up from the earth. I will draw. All men unto me. What was it? A Roman centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion detail expressed his judgment of that man that they crucified. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God saying, Certainly, this was a man unlike any man I've ever seen in my life. This was a righteous man. Mark recorded it. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out he, and gave up the ghost, he said, truly. You know what that means? No shadow of doubt. No possibility of error. Truly, this man was the Son of God. The others who were under the centurion's authority expressed their judgment as well. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. All the people who came, all the people who came, all the people who came to see the crucifixion experienced a change of perception and a change of attitude. Listen to it in Luke 23, 48. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. They weren't smiting their breasts when they were crying out, Crucify him! They weren't smiting their breasts when they said, let's see if Elias will come get him. Well, if you're the son of God, come down off the cross. But the cross, when he's done with it, has an attraction. And he said, and I, if I be crucified, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me.
That's why Paul can talk about the preaching of the cross is to the Jews' foolishness, to the Greeks' foolishness, but to we who are saved, it is the power of God because we can't get to him except the Father bring us. We can't get the Father to bring us without going through him. So we are totally helpless. But at that cross, he brought the solution. I will draw you unto me. Let's stand together. I'm not standing, but in inside I'm standing. Would it feel right to you to lift your hands? And to say thank you, Lord, thank you. Help me see that cross in a new light, in a new understanding. And when I see you to be drawn because there was no flaw, no failure, either in your words or your attitudes, you were such a perfect man. I want to follow you, Lord. You can call me out of the life I'm living, and I will follow you. You're worthy of my life, Lord. Hallelujah. Pastor, did you come?